0: I'm Andrew Faust, here with Permaculture Perspectives Today, I'm going to talk about one of the key concepts that I focus on in my courses and in my curriculum as well as a foundational part of the work that I'm doing locally and in my area, and that is to articulate a vision a vision of what we'd rather see in the world and for me what that means is making our lives beautiful resilient and very high quality it's important that we put quality of life far and above standard of living And then we begin to establish some empirical benchmarks by which we can discuss in an unemotionally charged way what does it mean to create a better world how do we go about doing it And studying this question from the perspective of really looking into the ancient history of civilizations quite a bit and the evolution of human societies in the transition from the end of the last ice age into creating the first cities. And as I look deeper into the real roots of the disease of our social condition shall we say, it's become clear to me the communities that are able to produce more of their daily goods, more of the things that people love to have available to them. Good food, good water, good sanitation, good housing, good quality of life. The more we bring those things home, food, water, shelter, and the materials that go together to make it the better our quality of life is. The way I like to describe this is with a phrase that I use in my courses, in my programs, and that you'll find on our website, a whole 152 slideshow that's on a page on our site called Information and Resources, where I've archived this extensive slideshow outlining what I call a bioregional economy. And I've been working on an idea for the last decade with a colleague and dear friend of mine David Harper that we are rolling out a little more officially and that is an organization that we're creating that we are naming the Permaculture Living Land Trust. And much of the impetus behind the Permaculture Living Land Trust that David and I are starting is grounded in this agreement that we have from our analysis and our personal life experience that we need to enhance the financial framework that's available for creating an inheritance that future generations will be able to relish the rewards of as well as the present generation and that is creating landscapes that invest in the long-term inheritance and short-term resilience and as primarily terrestrial dwellers it becomes clear that our allies in these efforts towards resilience and increased quality of life are long-term perennial polyculture plantings that volunteer in the landscape. just had a call there from a graduate of a nearby permaculture class asking me about hey what do you think about a collaborative group who does regional scale designs like, you know, the comprehensive plans that municipalities are right now paying engineers to do that don't even consider green infrastructure, much less local food production, much less redesigning sewage systems to actually be a benefit, not a detriment. So just had a nice talk with him about that, and it brings me back to the theme for today's podcast, which is the solution as I like to see it is to transition for our civilization meaning the global civilization of 2020 to transition to much more robust much more productive local diverse ecological economies what this looks like is what I call retrofitting the infrastructure to be more regionally self-reliant in ways that increase food security and energy security, and prosperity for many generations to come. One of the key elements to retrofitting the infrastructure to be more regionally self-reliant is to begin to define empirically what is our region. And to do this, we pan out And look down at the Earth's surface and we see that one of the best natural patterns to configure human settlements to is the one that we call watershed. And this is why the framework for the design prospectus that I'm working on right now, both for a book, for rolling out how the Permaculture Living Land Trust is going to approach different regions, as well as for a case study that we're working on a short film about with a graduate that will be focusing on the Rondout, Creek Watershed, where the Center for Bioregional Living resides in a sub-watershed of the Rondout, which is the drainage basin of a smaller creek that is called the Beer Kill. And the Beerkill flows into the Rondout in Ellenville, and the Rondout drainage then flows into, in a northerly direction, the Hudson River at the city. Of Kingston, where it converges with two other sizable watersheds one which flows by New Paltz, which is called the Wallkill, and the other which flows out of the Catskills, which is called the Esopus. And so in Kingston, you have the confluence of three major watersheds happening the Rondout, the Wallkill, and the Esopus. Each of these watersheds is well over a thousand square miles of land surface that when rain lands on it, it ends up in the Rondout, or the Wallkill, or the Esopus. Watershed literacy is first key to retrofitting the infrastructure to be more regionally self-reliant because we all live in a watershed. And patterns of settlement and development have been largely non-cognizant of it, meaning they really don't pay attention to it. And it is the foundation of how hydrology works, how ecology works, how plant and animal communities adapt themselves. It has to do with orientation, slope, aspect, drainage. These are all determined by where are you in the watershed? Are you in the floodplain of a large stem? Are you up on an east-facing hill of a small creek? that begins from a spring further up the hill, where are you in the landscape? This is the foundation of good design. For the most part, in permaculture, there's been a lot of focus on what I call site-specific design, focusing on how do you design a farm, an eco-village, an intentional community. Those things are great, important, arguably, however, idiosyncratic microcosms that don't, end up turning around the larger engine of self-destruction and annihilation that has been going on at the hands of the industrialists. Industrial engineers are who control right now the planning process in this part of the United States and it has created a gray dead industrial infrastructure that is decaying and crumbling And costing us hundreds of millions of dollars and a huge amount of our health and well-being is sacrificed by this version of an infrastructure and the real fundamental problem with it is that largely how we feed ourselves how we clothe ourselves where most of the materials come from to create the energy that we use in the rondout river watershed in the larger, greater Hudson Valley River watershed, all are imported. And pretty much nothing is exported. And so as a result, you have a highly consumptive, highly dependent population of people. Then we could ask ourselves, is it necessarily the case that people who live in the Rondout Creek drainage or the Wallkill drainage in New Paltz Do they need to eat and live on and use energy that is primarily imported? Or is it conceivable that we could create more of what it is that we eat and more of the energy that we use in in renewable and restorative ways? Can we create those things closer at hand? Is it conceivable that we could actually grow most of the food that people eat in the Rondout Creek watershed within the very watershed where they live? Is it conceivable? What are the numbers? Can we actually talk empirically about what it looks like to feed people full diet year-round in the Hudson watershed and in the Rondout Creek watershed? And that's why I'm working on a case study that I'll be sharing that will show clearly the numbers, the layout, and the pattern. And what I am already excited and inspired by that is coming to the surface from where we are, even at present in this project, we haven't finished it. And it is evident that we absolutely can become food independent and energy independent within the Rondout Creek Watershed and within the greater Hudson Valley Watershed at large. It's also clearly evident that the way in which we're going to go about doing that is not even considered by any of the studies or master plans or regional planning associations, or conservation groups that have done food shed studies, they all look at the potential to grow existing agricultural crops on prime agricultural soils. Well, as we begin to create a design goal for our economy and our populations to become more food self-reliant and energy self-reliant, we also create a vast array of diverse, interesting, green jobs that create real autonomy and security economically for local populations. And any other model of economic development leaves local people in a vulnerable position where they are dependent upon a whole set of activities that they have no direct experience of that exist far afield from their geographic location. Meaning when you live in a society who makes money purely by producing specialty goods or export goods and not growing any of your food and not producing any of your energy, then you are in a vulnerable position when those supply lines are jeopardized. And I think it's important to also take to mind why am I so interested in this combination of full diet year-round food production at a watershed master plan level where we retrofit the infrastructure to be more regionally self-reliant one watershed at a time. The reason for this fairly complex and diverse solution set is because a vast amount of the problems of the industrial era have emerged from the oversimplification homogenization of landscapes to make them nothing more than a place where you can truck things in and truck things out and what are some of the costs of that I thought I'd share with you a little bit of uh, information on why it is I'm so focused on this entire regional retrofit not simply one property not simply one community but the whole economy needs to become focused On better energy, better fuel sources, better transportation, and the elimination of our utter and complete dependence on fossil fuels, radioactive materials, mined and extracted contaminants. So on that note, as an intro to this reading, here's the title of this book, one of my favorites on this topic. This book is called Lives Per Gallon, The True Cost of Our Oil Addiction by Terry Tamminen. This is from the chapter called A Losing Proposition. The Federal Clean Air Act identifies the combustion of automotive fuels as the major source of hazardous air pollutants in the United States, causing or contributing to a wide array of human illnesses from difficulty breathing and asthma to brain damage and damage to the fetus. Perhaps the greatest threat from our oil addiction, however, is cancer. Of the 225 toxic or carcinogenic chemicals contained in gasoline, three of them, benzene, 1,3-putidine, and formaldehyde in the form of airborne pollutants pose the greatest cancer risk to humans. The largest source of these toxins is auto-exhaust. And all three chemicals are emitted in excess of Federal Clean Air Act health standards. The U.S. oil and auto industries also produce more greenhouse gases than most other countries produce from all their industries combined. And the source of about half of these gases is vehicles, principally passenger cars. Combining all emissions from every step on the journey of our drop of oil, the U.S. Department of Energy estimates that approximately 25 pounds of greenhouse gases are emitted for every gallon of petroleum fuel consumed. Driving petroleum-powered vehicles in the United States accounts for 20 billion tons of those gases per day. Overall, direct vehicle emissions worldwide are responsible for up to 85% of all benzene pollution 80% of all CO2 emissions 60% of all NO2 emissions 50% of all greenhouse gas emissions and 14% of all global particulates So when we look at this and say Why would we need to do something as complicated as retrofit the infrastructure to be more regionally self-reliant? Well because in the present scenario we're gassing ourselves to death with the way in which we're moving material goods around the landscape diesel particulate is even worse when you look at the pollution load of diesel you've got an even higher degree of contamination that's happening uh, because of the particulate that's coming from it So. Eliminating this is essential. Let me share with you some other numbers. Here's what John Wargo from Green Intelligence, he's a PhD guy from Yale, the Department of Forestry, wrote this really excellent book at the analysis and assessment of the pollution legacy. No solution, really, which is ultimately that we need to become more energy self-reliant with a diversity of renewables and utterly get off of fossil fuels. But that's okay. Wargo offered us a lot of ammunition to understand... What is it that we're firing against, which is shutting down the industrial machine? So Wargo, on breathing toxic air, estimates 86% of the world's energy is derived from fossil fuels. Oil, gas, diesel, natural gas, fuel oil, coal. These are responsible for most of the nation's outdoor air pollution. Half of all U.S. citizens are living in areas not meeting federal standards. One-third of the U.S. population lives in the Northeastern Corridor from Washington to Maine. One of the largest studies ever conducted estimated that a reduction by 10 parts per billion, or about 35%, could save 4,000 lives a year in urban areas. This is why I'm an advocate of high-speed rail in the Northeastern Corridor. It has to happen. We have to connect Baltimore to Philadelphia To New York City, to Boston, D.C., these all need to be connected through high-speed rail. It should have happened two decades ago. This country is a behemoth dinosaur that's toxifying its citizens to death with no concept of a plan or a model of economic development that's actually by the people, for the people, and future generations are going to thank us for We must design, collectively, economies that are regionally suited, socially appropriate, and ecologically intelligent. Insofar as we compromise air, water, and soil quality, and inflict illness from contamination on ourselves, we are not advanced. We must evolve ways of living that enhance the health of all people and resilience of the world. Nations and peoples of the world must begin to rebuild the health and wealth of our life's blood. The health of our air, our water, our soil, our children, our food, is to grow in, ultimately, that all the wealth of all the people and all the nations. America's pollution levels track the global trends. 50% of lakes and ponds are cancer-causing with Chromium-6 contaminates. 200 million American wells will cause 12,000 cancer deaths by the century's end. UNICEF estimates 2 billion children breathe air posing long-term health hazards, while 300 million breathe extremely polluted air. 600,000 baby and toddler deaths annually can be directly linked to air pollution. A University of Toronto study found that people living within 50 meters of a busy road are 12% more likely to develop dementia. And 17 other studies linked air pollution with dementia. So this is why I'm saying that we need to retrofit the industrial infrastructure to be more regionally self-reliant. And thank you for listening today and taking the time to understand these ideas. I look forward to hearing your feedback and input. And I'll have more to share with you next week on Permaculture Perspectives.